Welcome to The Mentor List, a source of sound advice with your host, David Lewis. To seek support and you need to allow yourself to be supported. Really have a point of difference. What is precious, what's really important, and then putting some boundaries there. The Mentor List specialises in interviews with top business minds. Gather their advice for your career. This is The Mentor List. Hi, welcome to today's show. Today we're having a chat with Mark Ritson. Mark is the adjunct professor of marketing at Melbourne Business School and a visiting professor at Singapore Management University. He has a PhD in marketing from Lancaster University and has been a faculty member of some of the world's leading business schools teaching in the MBA programs at London Business School, MIT Sloan and the University of Minnesota. He is widely acknowledged as one of the world's best marketing instructors and has been the recipient of MBA teaching awards at LBS, MIT, SMU and MBS. So a few acronyms of some of the best brands in business school there. Mark has worked globally as a private marketing consultant on projects ranging from brand strategy, market research, segmentation, CRM, uh, basically the lot. Marketing communications, brand acquisition, brand valuation, and brand extensions. There's not much he hasn't done in marketing. His clients, as you'd expect, include many well-known brands working with senior execs from brands, for example, Louis Vuitton, Dom Perignon, Fendi, Tagua, Dior, Hennessy, just to name a few. He has written a weekly column on branding for Marketing Week for over a decade. On three occasions, he's been judged the business columnist of, I always struggle with that word, columnist of the year at PPA Press Awards, which is the highest award for magazine journalism in the UK. He's also a columnist, there's that word again, for the Australian newspaper. His more scholarly publications, just to add another tongue twister to my bio here, include articles published in Sloan Management Review, Harvard Business Review, the Journal of Advertising, and the Journal of Consumer Research. He was a recipient of the Ferber Award in 2000, one of the most prestigious prizes in marketing. For his doctoral thesis in 2001, his co-authored research on pricing was cited by George Akerlof during his Nobel Prize acceptance speech. Wow. He is a Tasmanian by marriage, is what he says, and lives somewhere between there and the mainland, being Australia. So who better to run us through the future of marketing? And I really hope and know you will enjoy today's conversation with Mark Ritson. Mark Ritson, welcome to The Mentor List. Great to be here, David. Thank you. Great to have you on. If I understand right, you've just finished a full day teaching brand here at Melbourne Business School. Yeah, you've got me at a perfect stage of exhaustion. I've just finished, what was it, day three of a five-day uh, MBA elective in brand management. We run it sort of 8.30 to 4.30 each day. And we've got a class of 91. So it's a very high energy. And they're now busy working all around us on a brand positioning exercise which allows me an hour off to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, so I'm probably between you and having a Friday night drink, so <laughs> we'll make this. That's true, yeah, I reckon that's about right. <laughs> Bang on 20 minutes. So, yeah, just for the listeners that don't know uh, Mark Ritson, um, do you want to just maybe give us a little synopsis about who you are and tell us your story? Yeah, well, I'm a, a marketing professor, I guess. I, I did, I've always done marketing, and I'm old enough to make to, for that to be quite unusual. So I did my undergrad in marketing in the 80s, which wasn't easy to do back then. Did a couple of years' work and then got a scholarship to go and do an MBA, which turned into a PhD in marketing. And I became a very young and very useless marketing professor teaching in America and really was, you know, well-meaning but not very practically experienced for the first four or five years of my career. But then I moved back to the UK where I'm originally from and became a professor at London Business School. And at the time, London Business School, at the turn of the century at least, was very applied. So I was thrown into doing executive teaching but also consulting. And that began my turn towards being a more practical professor, if I can say such a thing. And the main relationship, I guess, was I started a 15-year consulting relationship with LVMH, the luxury goods company in Paris, working across all of their brands globally and, and for their CEO team. Wow. So, so that was my – I mean, I've done work, all kinds of other work since and around it. But, you know, I, I began to actually get to work on 
proper brand strategy for proper big billion dollar brands globally at that point. Yeah. And so I've got probably, I'm 20 years a professor, but 10 years of, you know, consulting work. And for the last seven or eight years, I, I'm only an adjunct professor now, which means I don't do a lot of the f- research stuff. I still teach branding at, at Melbourne Business School, but I'm, I run my own consulting firm, which works with, you know, large companies on branding and not, you know, I knock out a couple of million dollars a year of consulting revenue. Fantastic. With, with an employee of one. So it's good. It's yeah, good. Yeah, my wow. cost of goods is my life, as I like to say. So, so adjunct professor, so that means you're not doing research articles. Is that how yeah, that comes about? Yeah, adjunct, I think, means is Latin for not real anymore. So <laughs> I don't do any real research and I don't do any service yep. admin. I come in and teach and then I leave and go and do work. Right. And that <laughs> seems to just be perfect for me. Just knowing how you... I guess got the job at Mount Business School. <laughs> How many years back was it? Fifth, I think it's 15 years. 15. So I'm married to an Aussie and we came out to look for a, uh, a suitable position. I mean, I, it was a heavy heart. I, I loved London Business School and I, I'd also had a soiree at MIT at the Sloan School, both of which were great schools. So I was looking for a world-class school, obviously, in Australia. And for various reasons, it ended up being Melbourne Business School. And, and, and the great thing about MBS is, A, it is world-class. You know, we're ranked third in the world for marketing right now. Yeah, just next to Kellogg in Indiana and above LBS Wharton, MIT, and everyone by the Financial Times. So we are world-class, although we're a smaller school. The students are world-class, which is really important. But also, you know, it, they've been kind to me. They've let me do my thing which isn't always easy. You know, I've, I've done my, I certainly give it back to the school in terms of support, but they've been very good to me. And yeah. so it's been a good relationship and one I think will see me out eventually, you know, in the future down the track. You know, I, won't, I don't wish to go anywhere else. You know? Yeah, fantastic. You've you found your home. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. And I sort of get the sense that, you know, you have a certain way of doing things and whether there was an option to allow you to do that or, or try and change the uh, There's a bit of negotiation. I mean, I, I'm, I'm relatively footloose now. I mean, what's been happening in the world of academia is professors that have some standing have more power than they used to have. We were, you know, we were indentured to our business schools and they were the brands. But it's clear that there's a smaller number of, you know, more well-known professors that I'm lucky enough to be part of that are able to leverage that notoriety, not for money necessarily, but certainly to get a bit more freedom to do what they want. Yeah. And also, obviously, influence. And do you want to talk about some of the other, the writing in the papers uh, in the UK, the success you've had sort of in that region as well? I I very much respect what my colleagues here and elsewhere do with respect to research publications, but I've always felt utterly disappointed in them. I think most of them are full of nonsense. I think they don't have any impact on marketing practitioners. I think they state the obvious 99% of the time and no one reads them. And so my preference was always to write for marketers. And so I began writing for Marketing Magazine about 15 years ago, which is a big UK publication. I then switched in a scandalous uh, transfer move to Marketing Week, their arch rivals, about seven or eight years ago. And I've always written a weekly column for, for them in the UK, which is yeah. you know, very well known, I think. And then here I've been writing for the Australian for Darren Davidson and the media column now for a couple of years as well, which which is great because the Australian carries such influence. I cannot tell you. It's obviously just obviously a you know, mass newspaper in one sense, but everyone in the top tier reads it. It's stunning. And so they, they're my other two jobs, really. You're writing a column for Marketing Week on a Monday in the UK and for the Australian on a Friday in, in, here, here in Oz. So this is from Tassie. So you, I, I'm just picturing a nice green, picturesque yep. place. And you've got a cup of tea or a coffee. And yeah, I'm definitely out. doing it. I mean, I, I can't promise you I'm living the dream. I'm still spending far too many days on the road. But, yeah, we're getting closer to being able to have a family life in Tassie. Uh, out in the country and still being able to work. I, I stopped working international stuff about a year and a half ago with kids. I'm trying to just base myself out of Australia because you just can't keep doing that. Mm. And I miss that a little bit, but not much. But yeah, I, I, you know what? The goal is to is to have two days a week on the mainland, as we call it, and the rest of the time very much working, but doing it from home. Yeah, fantastic. And I guess, so writing in the Australian, the weekly column, and it must be fantastic lead generation to flow into your consulting. And Yeah, uh, it's interesting. It was sold to me when I started writing for marketing as you, you'll get loads of client work. And, and the reality is you don't. 
But what happens is when you go into a, a room of marketers, they all know who you are, which makes life a lot easier. And they already know what they're getting to some degree. The clients I've worked with in the last five or six years kind of tell me what they want me to do because they already know what, what I'm good and not good at. Yeah. So that bit definitely helps. I mean, I've found, to be honest, I've got really good clients. I'm not just saying that, that I work with now for seven or eight years in most cases. And, you know, I don't need any new work, which is great. And I like staying with the same clients. It's, you know, planning and strategy are much better if we can do it over three or four years. Yeah. You really build a a way of working. And so, yeah, it, it makes me happy. I mean, these days I write mainly because it's very satisfying to, to create something each twice a week. It's, it's the most satisfying thing I do. And, of course, with social media, the audience is, is dramatically enlarged now. And, and you know, I... It would not be unusual for me to get, I don't know, 400 or 500 comments in a week from one of my pieces, many of which, I mean, you know, a significant proportion of which are hugely opposed to it, by the way. But, and there's nothing wrong with that. But yeah, I mean, I measure influence in terms of does anyone know who I am and do they read my stuff and do they have an opinion about it? And it doesn't have to be positive. But I want to be involved. I think more academics should be involved, and and it's tragic that they're not. Yeah. Yeah, well, this is, I guess, a perfect segue into, you know, future of marketing and the themes here. And, I mean, it's there's a lot of people that are aspiring to be thought leaders in whatever it is that they need to be an expert in, whether Mm. it's a service business, et cetera. I mean, and you're sort of positioned, well, you are positioned as the thought leader in marketing. And so how have you seen that progress in different areas as marketing in other industries or skill sets? Yeah, it's a real problem. You know, it's interesting. If you look at where we were even 15 years ago, marketing professors had this kind of dominant influence over thought and definition of, you know, the American Marketing Association got a bunch of marketing professors together every five years and they literally defined marketing. Right. And that wasn't necessarily a good thing, by the way, but they certainly had control of it. And then with the advent of social media and, frankly, the popularity of marketing, it's attracted an enormously engorged following and leadership base and and thought leaders and so on. And that's got to be a good thing. My problem with it is not the democratization of it because I'm uncomfortable with academics, which, remember, you know, the the academics comes from the academy. It's an exclusive operation, right? I'm very comfortable with democratization, and I've learned more from practitioners than from other professors. However, I do want or prefer to see the thought leaders in marketing have some kind of training in marketing before they start being thought leaders in marketing. Um, It doesn't mean, again, they have to agree with the, the previous corpus of marketing thought and knowledge and so on. But it does mean they have to know what they are before they start flying off the handle, inventing stuff that's already been invented or contradicting things they don't understand. And and that's my problem. Democratization is great, but it it should be an educated democracy and not necessarily a business school or university, but they need to have studied marketing. And we have a lot of Philistines, and I, I use that word deliberately, who are, you know, listening to the sound of their own voice, which I certainly do as well. But they haven't learned from anyone else and from the giants of marketing. We're 100 years old, the marketing discipline, and not necessarily correct all the time. Mm. But my goodness, the basics and the fundamentals are more relevant now than ever before. And I, I despair people like Gary Vee, who's a delightful human being, very impressive in his impact and everything else, but is doing enormous damage to the field of marketing as we speak. And I can see it happening. So do you want to elaborate? <laughs> well, Gary's the Gary's this incredible. I mean, he's the most influential marketer on the planet. Yeah, he doesn't have any formal training in marketing, and is proud of that. He says things which aren't true, aren't empirically correct, mislead people, send them in the wrong direction. You know, I could pick on many things, and this is not something I have not communicated directly to Gary. Mm. And I've also openly asked him for a debate in America where I could demonstrate the fallacies of many of the things he said. And so far, he's definitely interested in a glass of wine, but not in the debate. But he, to be fair to him, let's give him time. I'll give you one example, and we could spend the afternoon talking about it. Yeah. Gary's definition of marketing is communications. Communications, at the very optimistic level, is 10% of the marketing challenge. First, we must understand the market with research, diagnosis. Then we must strategize around targeting, around positioning, around strategic objectives. We must work out our brand architecture. 
Then we have all the different tactical challenges, which include communications, but also which include pricing, product design, consumer experience, distribution channels, and so on. Then we have brand tracking and so forth. So communications is part of marketing, but it's not the main part of marketing. And Gary and his legion of followers are all occupied demonstrably just with tactics, within tactics, just communication, and within communication, just digital communication, which makes no sense because there isn't anything that isn't digital anymore. Yeah. So I just find it very frustrating that he has a responsibility to these young people that are following him to teach them about marketing, but it's hard because he himself doesn't understand the discipline. And that sounds patronizing, but it's it's heartfelt. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you know, working in, I guess I'm in the digital marketing realm as well. I mean, it's such a, there's so many experts that have done something that you just see continuously advertising on YouTube about, you know, the newest and latest and greatest and they're standing in front of Lamborghinis and you're thinking, what's going on here? What, are you, what value are you adding? It's a peculiar sort of blend of, you know, personal branding and, you know, accomplishment and digital marketing in, in sort of a soup. It's troubling because, again, you know, and again, without wanting to get too pointy about it, digital marketing doesn't exist anymore. And it doesn't exist anymore because everything's digital. I was in London last month for the launch of JC Dicko's basically ad exchange, digital ad exchange for outdoor advertising because more outdoor is digital than non-digital in yeah. metro areas. You know, in this country now, we have addressable TV advertising on Channel 7. You know, different ads in the same program in different households if they're watching it streaming. You know, digital radio is growing like the clappers here. You struggle to name a non-digital medium. So digital is more than 50% of spend, but that's when we use these arbitrary definitions. Everything is digital. And this digital marketing obsession I find very troubling because the spirit of media neutrality, of integrated marketing, of strategy before tactics is lost the minute you put the D word in front of your marketing title. Yeah. And I'm misunderstood and misrepresented all the time. I think digital tactics, if that's what you want to call them, have tremendous value. What Facebook can do with segmentation is fantastic. Search is the, the biggest revolution in marketing communications history. But we start with strategy and we integrate across many tools, many of which these digital marketers refuse to touch. And so, you know, I really find it a difficult space, but I have hope. There's a new CMO just started at L'Oreal last week. He was just saying, look, I'm telling everyone in my company, I don't want digital marketing. It's just marketing. And he's right. So I think we're coming full circle, finally. Not without digital tactics. You can't execute a brand without Facebook or Google these days. Yep. But recognizing that marketing is still marketing. Yeah. I guess just on the tactics side and what has traditionally been that digital marketing space, which, you know, we're coming full circle. Do you have any commentary around how that's being diluted or becoming less a less efficient way of selling and, and maybe also some comments around direct selling and how that doesn't or does fit into a strategy? I think there's two key pieces, three key pieces that we're learning about the, the so-called digital marketing tools or digital media. The first is obvious but has not been made obvious, which is if Mark Zuckerberg almost exactly 10 years ago got up in front of all the main advertisers and agencies in New York and announced that advertising was dead. We're now going to have organic conversations between brands and consumers and it was going to all be about dialogue and so on. And we all fell for that. You know, social media and all of that nonsense, the Oreo tweet. And you have to remember that. So we all fell for that. And it turned out to be not, he was 23 years old. And that turned out to be nonsense. Mm. Facebook's advertising is fantastic, but it's just standard advertising across a new channel. Yeah. So first of all, you know, no one's drawn a line between social media and all that organic nonsense and digital media, which is just a standard advertising tool, which now adopts different channels. We've somehow blurred those two together as if it's something different, which it's not. The, the second thing that disturbs me is obviously the measurement issues. Let's be honest at the start, radio measurement, news media measurement, TV measurements, they're all extremely imprecise, but they're done within a margin of error by independent companies without wall gardens that we can believe in. If you look at the errors that Facebook have been making, particularly in Google a little bit, but particularly Facebook, they are egregious errors that are certainly not being done deliberately, but which tell you that there's not a lot of clarity out there. 
and the deliberate attempt. I mean, the problem with walled gardens isn't that Facebook are behind their lying. That's clearly not the case. They're making errors, but they're not lying. The problem is behind that walled garden is a system that cannot be cross-compared with other walled gardens. There's an enormous problem for us. And that, that has to end at some point with proper advertising exchanges. And we'll get there eventually. So effectively marking your own homework, if you like. Yeah, marking your own homework. And I don't think anyone accuses them of cheating. That's an important caveat. Yeah. But when you mark your own homework, you use your own grading system. And that's not helpful for anyone. And that's where P&G and Pritchard are right. And then the last part, which isn't digital's fault directly, but you can't do digital marketing or digital media without programmatic. Yeah, it's physically not possible. There are hundreds of thousands of possible sites you know, it, it has to be done using a systematic advertising exchange-based real-time model. But programmatic has turned into an absolute disaster. In so fact, what's programmatic? Just so programmatic is a catch-all term now for how you buy your digital media, because you're buying it across different target customers. You're buying customers rather than fixed media sites, right? So you're buying where they are at a real point in time. Uh, using an advertising exchange. So in theory, let me, there's two there's two programmatics. There's the theory of programmatic, which was the idea that we would identify a target audience, identify a bid price for you know reaching that target audience, and then systems would be put in place which would buy the appropriate digital media in real time on an auction, which would allow my ad, digital or display, to reach that customer and I pay per exposure mm-hmm. and it would be efficient it would be done in real time and it would be the future that was the dream of programmatic about five years ago and it sounded awfully impressive the reality in late 2017 is programmatic is a big dirty box of turds and spiders <laughs> no one really knows what's going on but it's almost it's pretty clear that everyone's taking a massive slice of the client's money it could be up to 70% of the dollars being spent on programmatic are going to companies offering a variety of services before it gets to working media. Mm-hmm. And then even with that 30% that's left, the proportion of non-human traffic might be as high if we take the 30 as our base as 10 or 12 or 15% because it's endemic across the programmatic system. So you might be looking at a company that's laying down $100 of programmatic spend and getting $15, $20 of working capital. Right. And that's because everyone's being greedy. It's because no one's being transparent. And it's because it's the Wild West. There are 300 plus exchanges out there. Many of them are offering media that they don't actually offer. And no one knows what the hell's going on. Mm. So the dream of programmatic versus its reality is a salutary lesson in where digital marketing is going, which is into a really bad place. There's no doubt we will eventually come out of that bad place and that some form of automated buying where all media are sold on an advertising exchange. So you, you know, you're going after 19 to 25 year olds living in urban Melbourne that have an interest in, I don't know, ice hockey. Mm-hmm. You go then able to buy for various different prices an exposure to that customer across TV, radio, outdoor, Facebook, Google, everything. That that universal system at some point will come into play. It might be 15 years from now. Who knows? Yeah, and that will eradicate a lot of the problems, but we have to get there first. But right now, it is an absolute disaster zone. And, you know, clients who've never really known what's going on all over the place, and we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars of spend, which is where all the big audit firms are now getting interested because they can see the opportunity to, A, advise them on where to spend their money, and, B, introduce their own programmatic ad exchange systems to take out the media agencies who appear to have a very, very short future. So in the sort of, you know, experience democratization, I struggle with that word, but you're sort of talking about almost going back to that aggregator level and maybe not one being the big, a couple media houses, but one. Yeah, I mean, we certainly need less than the 300 or 400 yeah. that we have right now because that's the problem. Within those 300 or 400 exchanges, there's room for all kinds of fraud. Yeah. And transparency issues which aren't fraud, they're just, you know, no one knows what's going on. It's hard to look that far out and say what it would look like, but, you know, it's fundamentally a financial exchange. So you would imagine if you base it off the kind of stock exchange models we know, then, you know, you can have one commodity exchange for, you know, pork rinds or whatever it is, or oranges. Maybe it'll be something similar. So it could be there'll be an exchange for each of the different channels, or maybe there's a single cross-exchange, or there'll be two or three competing exchanges 
It's really hard to say, but clearly that's where we get to. And that's a great thing, by the way. And I think the analogy of a Wild West is a great one because the Wild West became the Midwest and the Wild West was dangerous and full of crime. And the Midwest is one of the safest, most profitable places to be. So the future promise of advertising exchanges, digital marketing, uh, programmatic and so forth is truly fantastic. But getting there at such speed is enormously problematic. And it's not as if we can pause develop these systems and then channel the client's money in. Hundreds of millions of dollars will be pumped this year into programmatic buying that is fraudulent, suboptimal, and frankly, not somewhere where companies should be spending their money. But we can't wait, you know what I mean? The only way we'll learn is by spending money on it. So the wastage is quite phenomenal. And, And if I can add one more point, while all this is going on, we have this ridiculous slighting of so-called traditional media. Television is not dying. Television audiences are not dying. We are certainly watching less TV than we used to. It remains the predominant source of video in this country. It remains the even more predominant source of video advertising in this country. Any which way you look at Google and Facebook's total video audience, even among the younger, more digital audiences, TV is still beating it for number of TV advertising minutes per day, according to all the Nielsen data, all the Comscore data. Never in the history of marketing have so many lies been told by so many people without any challenge. It's a stunning, stunning oversight. And and so what about some other traditional media, so radio, for example? I mean, is that flatline? Because, you know, I've I've heard the uh, the anecdotal that TV's, you know, going through the floor and, and I've heard the same anecdotal comments around radio. Bands. No, I mean, so there's a couple of sources you can look at. So if we look at audiences, they're very bullish for radio. I don't know about Australia next year, but certainly the UK uh, radio is up 7% uh, this year in terms of client spend. And what I've seen in the data here and in New Zealand is radio is basically a flat line. If you actually look at Walk, do a good bit of data on this, that actually look at 10 years of, you know, media spend, The real story is the rise, obviously, of digital media, but only at the expense of news media magazines. They have plummeted. If you go back 10 years in Australia or UK, if you bought direct mail, if you spent your ad money on direct mail, TV, and news and magazine media, that was about 75% of all advertising spent. It's only 10 years ago, right? And, And what's happened is TV remains predominant, but that news media has plummeted and continues to plummet negative 10% each year. So digital has has literally pulled that money out of news media. Now that's a problem for society that we can get to later perhaps. But TV's as flat as a pancake. Radio's as flat as a pancake. Cinema's as flat as a pancake. And their spot prices aren't declining that much either. And if you take outdoor, which is a great one to focus on, outdoor is very bullish. So because outdoor is now able to become a digital medium... So this is traditionally a big boards, yeah. you know, at a big highway. Outdoor on Swanson Street, um, you know what I mean? Big outdoor airports and so on. What's happening is a couple of interesting things. So more than, way more than 50% of the metro sites, the big sites now are digital LED screens. Yeah. That means a couple of things. It means creatively you can do all kinds of amazing stuff. It means you can respond in real time to stuff that's going on. Mm. It means you can... Get, I don't know what the number is right now, but you could probably get six or four different advertisers into a minute of outdoor rather than one. Mm. And yet also increase the eyes on screen for each of those advertisers versus one being there. So it's tremendously profitable for the outdoor industry. Yeah. yeah so digital's on fire. I mean, everyone knows that the stock prices of the digital of the outdoor companies is, is going through the roof. Mm. It's quickly moving to an advertising exchange model. Uh, and it's been energized. And TV is a bit further behind, but addressable TV, which is just starting to happen, which we saw with Channel 7 here, which you know, which we've seen in, in the US with CBS, as more and more customers, and ironically, they're not moving yet, as more and more customers move to streaming options for TV channels, the chance to show them different ads based on their demographics increases. But the problem is people aren't moving to handsets and they're not moving to PCs. If you look at... So this is my favorite statistics, and these are all backed up by a lot of data. Seven offered an app to watch the Olympics on uh, your handset or on your PC. And a total of, I think, just under 3% of the Olympics coverage was watched that way, and the other 97% on a TV. Right. Same is true of CBS's coverage in the United States. 
As you know, NFL, the American football, has been experimenting last year with Twitter live streaming the games, this year with Amazon Prime. In both cases, they're reaching 200 to 300,000 viewers using the streaming, around 15 million watch on TV. Wow, yeah, okay. And my point is twofold. First of all, why are those numbers so small? But more, more importantly, why does no one talk about them? Mm. 3% of the Olympic audience watched it digitally, 97% on a TV. And yet they get up at these conferences and talk about the death of TV. It's Nielsen data. It's in the public realm. Mm. There's, it's a great lie. A great <laughs> lie, which, as all great lies have to be, is totally believed by those who are telling the lie. Yeah. So I guess when we look at the future of marketing, <laughs> it's... Not all about digital marketing, unless you're working for a newspaper or you're you're, you're publishing a magazine. Or well, yeah, you, it's interesting. I mean, you know, the Australian will will make more of its sales revenue from digital subscribers than print subscribers this year. So I think it, it's a paradoxical message. The future of marketing is so digital that there's no point calling it digital anymore. You may as well call it electrical. Yeah, it's over because everything's become digital. Outdoor news media, television, radio. There is no dividing line. And this word traditional legacy is unhelpful, right? You can't have media neutrality. You can't have channel neutral thinking until you get rid of the D word and go, right, here's my target audience. Here's my objectives. And here's my position. Here's my budget. What will give me the best bang for buck? And if it's Facebook, my goodness, spend it on Facebook. But my point is open your mind. And digital marketers can't do that because there's a big D in their title that stops them having an open mind. Mm. Now, it works either way. There's some traditional marketers that aren't comfortable with digital, but there aren't many anymore, you know? So I think that, yeah, the future is so digital, it's not digital. One thing I'm certain of is in 10 years' time, when we look back at digital marketers and digital marketing, it'll sound about as contemporary as the World Wide Web. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you very much for sharing. Love listening in. So I guess, you know, what, what advice would you have for someone that doesn't have the level of, well, no one's got the level of, um, of knowledge, but where should they go for a trusted source, I guess, in terms of <laughs> looking at where to, to start in marketing? Uh, it's a great question and it's never been harder. I think the, the overriding advice I would give anyone in the sort of early years of their marketing career is ask dumb questions. I think there's a prevailing logic that, you know, I might look a fool if I ask these questions. The reality is the most experienced and most impressive marketers I know are the ones asking childlike questions, which either are met with a simple answer or reveal something that no one understood. There's a great story last month from the um, the CEO of Restoration Hardware, one of the big uh, retailers in the US. And he's a big, wonderful, certainly, you know, confident CEO and his digital team wanted to double their search budget for search advertising. And he said, well, why? And they said, oh, man, we're doing such a great job. If you can double the budget, we can deliver even more people to the website. And he said, well, how are you doing it right now? He said, well, you're on these 32 words that are delivering 90% of the visits to the website. And he said, well, what are the words? You know, and the guy said, oh, it's, a, you know, it's complicated. It's really complicated. He said, no, what are the words? And they said, oh, look, bro, we don't have them, but you wouldn't really be able to follow them. He said, no, no, well, let's just postpone the meeting, come back next week, tell me what the words are. I want to see the words. And the words were the 30 different ways to misspell restoration hardware. So what people were doing uh-huh. were just putting in a misspell or a typo, and that was getting them to the website. Right. And so my point there is, is it's the confidence to say, what's going on here? Explain this to me like a child because I don't get it. You know what I mean? That's the best piece of advice to give anyone. Anyone that tells you, you know, I understand what's going on with programmatic or I'm completely on top of all the developments in digital media is lying or they're a fool. Nobody knows. Yeah. People three times as smart as me and 10 times as experienced will tell you straight away, we have no idea what's going on. Someone turns up my office each week selling me a solution to a problem I didn't even know I had until I looked at it and I'm like, holy smoke, I didn't even know that was a problem. That, that's what marketing is right now. Yeah. So don't be afraid to ask dumb questions. And then it's, you know, find your trusted people across the spectrum. You know, I think it's about mixing up. And, you know, again, we have a problem here because I was talking to my students about it this morning. My wife is very into coconut oil. And um, my dad has been visiting us from England and thinks it's all nonsense. But eating the coconut. Yeah, uh, eating, frying in coconut yeah. oil. According to my wife is very healthy and according to my dad is not very healthy. And so to resolve this slight familial crisis, I went onto Google and typed in, is coconut oil good for me? And I was reassured by the answers that it certainly was. And just before I closed my website down, 
I typed in, is coconut oil bad for me? And received a number of troubling confirmations that it was very unhealthy. This is a problem with these guys, mm. Google and Facebook. They want all the money and they don't want any of the responsibility. You can't do that to society. And it's not about coconut oil. It's about democracy and gay rights and abortion and Russians and the complete lack of responsibility to supply the world's information to the world. They offer the biggest crisis that we've ever seen in mass communications. Make no, make no mistake, we head into a dark, dark place because of these guys. They're not doing it on purpose. They're just being, I've seen it before from other companies. They're just following the dollar and there's nothing wrong with that. But they need to be broken up. They yeah. need to be stewarded because we head into a place now that, you know, with more than half of the American population getting their news from Facebook and Google telling you the exact opposite message, depending on who you are, we're creating bubbles that will crash into each other. Mm. And, you know, I've worked with journalists for many years and they're a strange, uh, <laughs> how to describe them, unorthodox, certainly unprincipled, sometimes, you know, frequently drunk, politically incorrect <laughs> people. But it turns out, you know, they were the defenders of society and culture, that beneath a right-wing or a left-wing journal or editor is a societal responsibility to not tell lies and to take seriously what goes on a front page. Now that, you know, if you're a left-winger, you think that's not true, the right-wing and vice versa, but it was true across the spectrum. The problem with Google and Facebook, the problem that will haunt us for the next 20 years is neither of those companies consider themselves to be a publisher and will actively deny the point even though they supply most of the news to most of the developed world. That's a, an untenable situation, and we're only just beginning to glimpse the darkness that it produces. The Russians manipulated the American election and general democratic process using social media and advertising. That's a statement that would be incomprehensible. If I said that to you a year ago in a podcast, you'd be closing it down now and running for your life. Mm. That's what happened, right? According to a Congress hearing and Facebook's acceptance, that's exactly what happened. We are in a very dark place and, you know, copyright has disappeared, right? I listen to all kinds of beautiful music on YouTube in the morning, not one of which I've ever paid for. Mm. Google haven't paid for it either because they say it's not our responsibility to pay for the music that's on Google. It's the people posting the music. It's a complete abject lack of responsibility from those making the money to take responsibility as a publisher. And... You know, it's a terrible double whammy at the, the time when social media has created fake news. They've also decimated the news media that normally disinfects the bacteria of lies that take place in society. But there's journalists out there anymore, not in the same numbers. And so we're in a slippery place. And America is, is the poster child for this right now. You know, we have someone that's widely accused of uh, paedophilia uh, running for the Senate and looks likely to as a significant chance of getting in in Arkansas, and yet the, he still has tremendous support. But the reason he has tremendous support isn't because the people like pedophilia, it's because their news sources are telling you that he didn't do it. <laughs> you know, where are we? Where are we right now? And that probably is the dominant theme for the next few years ahead. Sure, they, you know, the, the digital duopoly will dominate advertising, clearly. But... Um, what they'll do to society is a different question. But anyway, so what would I say to a young marketer, onto the point again? First of all, ask lots of dumb questions. Second of yeah. all, ironically, you know, in my in my generation, you went to Unilever or PG or Diageo, because these are the great companies for training, right? Mm. Some of us went to consulting firms, but most of us went to the big consumer goods companies. They gave you a great grounding. And most of the senior CMOs that you know that you encounter are usually Unilever, PG, Reckitt, so on. That's certainly not the place to go if you're 25 now. These companies yeah. are still great companies, but you'd have to go to Google or Facebook. Mm. You'd have to head there. It's, it's the epicenter of everything, maybe Amazon. That's where you should be aiming yourself because by the time that 25-year-old is 45, they will be the dominant forces of everything. I mean, yeah, sure, they already are taking 75 80% of all advertising revenues going to digital companies, right? I mean, if you look at the data – in the US especially, they already take 70 cents in the dollar, mm. but all the growth is going to those two companies. Digital marketing is a flatline business because all the growth goes to those two companies. Yeah. So that's now. If you look at what's going to happen with voice, for example, you know, P&G and Unilever are in a, a difficult place because they spend most of their advertising dollars building brands so that when you're in the aisle, you remember Marmite or Vegemite or Cornflakes. 
but very quickly we'll be ordering stuff through Alexa or Google or whoever it might be. Yeah. And suddenly they have the power. And so if you look at how they're going to be able to expand themselves into TV, mm-hmm. Google isn't going to kill TV. Google's going to get TV. They're already working with CBS to handle the digital advertising within TV. Google's going to get to run supermarkets. Amazon owns Whole Foods and, and will do that. So if you were a young marketer, you have to aim for one of those big corporations because, geez, they're going to be controlling everything. And if you're 25 now and you can get into those companies, you're in the cockpit for the next 25 years. Yeah. And that, you know, that's these companies didn't exist, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, but they're the dominant players for our lifetime. Yeah. And so I just, uh, so I understand as well, Alexa, that's the voice behind... Amazon. Amazon. So this is when you have the, is it the Amazon Home Hub? Yeah. So I get a question. Yeah. If I go shopping or... Well, even even clearer than that. So what's going to happen and already is beginning to happen is, so if we look at, when you tell your grandchildren how you bought groceries, they will laugh at you. Yeah. Mm. So you drove yourself 10 miles to the nearest grocery store and you walked up and down the aisles looking at produce filling a basket which you manually pushed around and then took home, yeah? And even if you used search advertising to buy stuff, it will be hilarious to your grandkids. When you order stuff from now on, you're just going to not even look over your shoulder, but while you're baking and you notice that you don't have any chocolate chips left, you're going to shout, Alexa, put some chocolate chips on my shopping list, and the chocolate chips will turn up. Now, which chocolate chips is an interesting billion, billion-dollar question, The research so far of America says that when consumers put their Alexa voice-operated shopping list together, the preponderance of brands is much less. And that means that either your settings or artificial intelligence or Google or Amazon will decide which brands they're going to send you. And at that point, we have vertical integration into the consumer goods brands. We also have the end of advertising because most advertising dollars are spent on low-involvement reminder advertising. Or, yeah, well, a new a new market. So SEO is dead. doesn't matter if that's your keyword search. You got it. Search uh, dies. Google's vulnerable here because of that, right? Google's a two-step model. I'm going to enter what I'm looking for in a search engine, then it will take me to the site. Amazon has the advantage of being a one-step model. So with voice activation, it will take me directly to the order. Yeah. And if there's one thing we've learned, right, one step kills two step every time, especially in low involvement categories. Mm. So, yeah, Amazon looks good, really good. But, you know, Google's got a good system of voice operation too. The interesting one is Apple now, which falls behind badly. The days of Apple's domination come rapidly to an end, so rapidly that no one's really noticed it yet. Their own voice operating system has now been postponed by 12 months. They can't keep up that you cannot afford not to have a voice system in place. Tim Cook has done a good job holding the handlebars, but he's been falling behind ever since he took over. Mm. There's no new innovative developments. It's all incremental. You can't keep launching the iPhone 10, 11, 12, 13 and expect to stay buoyant against the digital duopoly. So cash pile aside, Apple's influence begins to dim, quite visibly so. Fantastic. God, I just love listening into this. <laughs> I'm thinking about my new strategies of marketing our podcast and our clients' <laughs> channels. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, so just is there a book that you'd recommend, you know, something tactile? Yeah. If, if you like the sort of uh, the digital revolution and the, the scary and exciting parts of it, there's a great book by Scott Galloway called The Four which talks about Apple, Amazon, Google, and Facebook and, and describes the, the influence. A better marketing, I mean, the, the book everyone should read, even though it's not a page turner, is Byron Sharp's book, How Brands Grow. That's the book read by every single senior marketer, which has interesting messages that are you know, revolutionary in content. The book I prefer is The Long and the Short of It, which is written by Peter Field and Les Binnett, and that describes this is a very strong book describing what makes for strong communication campaigns. But I think books, alas, are a thing of the past. And the reality is a young marketer today. I mean, I was telling my students, I get probably every month a marketing professor or consultant sends me the gallows of one of their books to, to you know to give a little quote for for the for the back. And more often than not, these books are about digital marketing. 
Now, I always take some time out to send an email back to the author to say, you've written 400 pages on digital marketing. Did it ever occur to you that every word of it should tell you that a book is highly inappropriate? Books are not the way forward, I think. And there are good books out there, but I doubt anyone who's 25 will read them. I think good podcasts, I think content curated by people that you respect, you know, LinkedIn has been very useful for me, I must say. I've really found that initially LinkedIn was keeping in touch with my students. Then it was posting some of my content. Then it was getting good content from some people I really respect. And now it's become my main source of insight. So I'd actually say the best thing to do is to start to set up a limit. Don't have too many people because then it gets, you know, diluted too much. Yeah. But I think having a, a cadre of really good thinkers that are not these opinion leaders and not these super senior people that are, you know, frankly out of touch in a way, in a weird way, and are posturing, but just good people in the industry, uh, you know, that's the way to go. So I'd say, yeah, for me, those books are great, but I'd have a LinkedIn, I'd work at my LinkedIn profile, find people who are interesting. For me, find people that can hold a contradictory idea. Mm. It's so rare, you know what I mean? But Or have two people that say the opposite to each other. I always respect people that stick it up me, but we can still have a good chat about it afterwards. Byron Sharp's a good example. I differ with Byron on a lot of things, but I can always at the end of the day say that he's a great scholar and a wonderful thinker. And, you know, that's important. It doesn't have to be so personal all the time. So, yeah, find people who are pleasant, but who offer a different worldview to yourself. Fantastic. It's always a good idea. So I'm just conscious that is your class coming back in? Oh no, I, I don't do anything with them now. No, no, oh, they yeah, just, they're, they're yeah, all, yeah, they're they, all they, they have to submit their exercise by four thirty. Four thirty, okay. but then they head off into the four corners. I don't do anything else. So no. they should have done it by now. Okay, I should have. I should have thirteen submissions okay. for a brand position if I've done my job well. That right. makes sense. But yep. we'll, you know, we'll okay. see. Uh, well, I'm, I'm onto the home. We're onto the home straight. It's just the last question around a quote. If there's a quote that stuck with you that you could share with the listeners. The one that, that is most important to me is one that, as I've got more senior, I've become more involved in strategy and away from tactics and so on. And actual, you know, I've been lucky enough to do strategy for some very big brands. And I've struggled with it because I don't really know what strategy is. You know, I was trained as a marketer, not as a, you know, we, we, we get trained in research. We don't really get trained in strategy to begin with. But I found myself with at least one of my hands on the wheel of some very big brands. And so when I studied strategy, relatively late in life i think the quote that sticks out is michael porter the great harvard professor of strategy the essence of strategy is deciding what you will not do and i I think that's so important for australia in the sense that everyone's going to do something you know i see these companies with seven strategic objectives well there's seven objectives that won't come true Mm. I see these companies with brand positioning statements that have seven slides or 42 words, right? None of that's going to work. I see companies that have, you know, 12 segments and they're targeting all of them. Well, that's not going to work. And what I've learned in my consulting career, not from my PhD and all that nonsense, but just from watching companies go through these cycles, is that strategy is about making choices. And what's more, strategy is deciding what you're not going to do. It's the segments that you don't target. It's the words that you don't use in your positioning. It's the objectives that you put aside for a year and the ones that you focus upon that produce successful companies. You make choices. Good managers make choices. And their strategies can be described on a single page. Bad managers don't make choices and have a 12-page strategy uh, manual for the year. So what happens is bad managers don't think about strategy for more than a day and produce a 12-page set of strategic objectives for 2018. Great managers spend four and a half weeks thinking about strategy and the strategy itself is half a page. That's what I look for. Like when I finish this class, if I'm successful and there's no guarantee I will be, the students will invariably tell me on Sunday evening that the class was great, hopefully, but also that it was common sense and simple. And that's entirely because I made it simple. If I wanted to make it complicated for them, I could do that just as easily. The point of strategy is the same. We must make it simple so it can be executed. Yep. But the process of making strategy simple is complex and requires choices. And I don't see that very often in Australia. I see the absolute absence of choice. Mm. Everyone's doing everything all the time to everyone. That's not strategy. That's just random corporate bingo. 
Love it. Thanks for sharing. So just a last question was so for the listeners that are listening in. Um, they might want to follow you on LinkedIn. Or yeah, follow, yeah, hopefully, follow hopefully, yeah, hopefully. Because, <laughs> no, I mean, how do they sort of find you and... Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd be delighted if anyone wants to follow me. I'm at Mark Ritson, all one word, R-I-T-S-O-N at Twitter. And I'm easily findable in on LinkedIn as well. And in both cases, I always post links to my columns. The Marketing Week one is free access. Interestingly, the Australian one is behind a paywall quite deliberately. And it's fascinating. I actually wrote a column about it last week. How many people object to the fact that I post a link to an article that's behind a paywall and say, yeah. well, did you realize... This article is um, its not accessible if you don't have a subscription to the Australian. I go, yeah, yeah I do. Yeah. <laughs> For some reason, people have begun to believe that, that you can get access to, quali- not my stuff's quality, but a quality newspaper for free. Yeah, That's not tenable. So, yeah, um, the Australian links are you have to pay your money, but I'd say the 80% of the people who do pay their money for a subscription to the Australian are very satisfied with that subscription. Yeah. So please do that and support your local newspaper. But yeah, either one, Twitter or LinkedIn is the way to go. And I'd be delighted to uh, to connect. Fantastic. Well, I'll chuck the links up online on mentalist.com.au. And Mark, yeah, thank you very much for your time. And you're certainly not short of energy <laughs> in this area. And I know you've been teaching all day. So Well, that's the problem. You get me at the end of teaching, I keep going. I've, I've done seven hours. This is just, yeah, you need to shut me down or I'll just keep going. <laughs> we, might, we might call it there. We were just on time. So Run for your life. We'd love, love to keep chatting. It's been fantastic. And such a just holding, you know, contradictory points of view to some of the streamlined views out there, especially in digital marketing. Um, yeah, it's funny though, isn't it? I'm either being contradictory for a reason or I may be right. And that's, yeah. if the latter is true, that would be extremely unusual, right? Yeah. But factual too. <laughs> so thanks again, Mark. Thanks, mate. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Mental List with your host, David Lewis. If you like what you're hearing on The Mental List, the best way to support the show is to just take a few seconds to leave a rating and or comment over on iTunes. You can also find further information about this show and links to further episodes at mentorlist.com.au. Until next time, this is The Mentor List.